Nerds Amalgamated. I am the DJ, and with me today, I have the Professor. Hello. So, you loving my P.T. Barnum voice? Not really. Oh, come on. You, you gotta be positive after what just happened the last few days with, with all the little crazy stories of COVID and lockdowns. Yeah, it's not too bad. <laughs> you make it sound like it's such a bad thing, though, like... With the tone of your voice. Well, now everything's open again, which means I have to go outside and see people. <laughs> oh well, that, that that can be a yeah, that that can be bad though. <laughs> Especially if they if they if they have COVID and stuff, they're like, ah, too. Like, oh, you got COVID. Yeah. So what else have you been up to, uh, Professor? Um, games. Nothing's happened in the last week because of the lockdown. Yeah, I know, but you could like you could watch a new Netflix show. You could do some baking. Well, I'd talk about that in Nerdful Things, wouldn't I? Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> you could try some new project. You could try some new projects like baking or cooking some new recipe. Well, I already know how to bake, so it wouldn't be a new project for me, would it? Oh, maybe something new, like a, a layer cake or something like that. A layer cake. Yeah. All right, you first. <laughs> Uh, what did I do? I, I started cooking curries. Well, with the slow, with the help of a slow cooker, which I don't really use that much. Yes, I actually cooked uh, French onion soup using a slow cooker the other day. Oh yeah, how'd it pan out? It was great. So um, you've got a story about the uh, Steam Deck and how it's making waves. Yeah, and I was gonna have a bit of a rant about how you can't buy Valve hardware in Australia. Because Valve hate Australians, and my theory is that they don't want to deal with the uh, consumer protection. Yeah. Because Australian consumer protection is why Valve has uh, refunds in the first place. And then I found out that the the Valve Index is coming out in a week or two, and that kind (laughs) of took all the wind out of my sail there. Oh, that sucks. It's hard for me to use that as one of the core parts of my argument when it doesn't really... (laughs) <laughs> but anyway, um, the Steam Deck was announced recently in the past few weeks. Uh, people are getting early access to try it out now. There's some videos, uh, LTT and uh, Tested have both done videos on it, and it looks very exciting. It's basically a Switch, but instead of having the Joy-Cons and Switch hardware, it's a full laptop-type setup. Um, presumably you'll be able to replace parts in it. Uh, don't know yet. We'll have to wait for the teardown and for the, well, for the, for the production version as well. Currently there's just dev kits, but it has, uh, can run full windows if you wanted to. Ooh. Valve's creating a custom Linux uh, distribution for it because with Valve's, uh, Proton, You can run basically any game on Linux. They've done a huge amount of work into making sure you can actually run games on Linux, which I am very happy with. I take it you've got you've got um, a spare bank account just just for just to buy this Steam Deck. Oh, I wish, (laughs) but I can't buy it here because Valve won't let me. That's what I was going to call this. Shut up and take my money, Valve. <laughs> or why Valve won't let me buy their products in Australia. <laughs> and then they went and blew it with the index. Not that I'm complaining. Uh, I, you know, I've wanted to get an index for ages, but apart from it being really expensive, it's going to be nearly two grand in Australia. Oh, uh, man. You just haven't been able to buy it here. 
you've had to well, import it. Although, mind you, there was there was a recent Kotaku article about how you can pre-order a Steam Deck in Australia. You can, but it involves a bunch of jumping through hoops. You need a, an American bank account, an American phone number, all sorts of stuff. And then when you get it in Australia, there's no guarantee that you'll still be able to use it uh, without buying all your games from an American account. Oh, Basically, um, currently they have it region locked so that only people in the US and Europe and a few other places can buy the Steam Deck. So I have a, a theory that even if you did manage to get one in Australia, you'd still have to have your account set up as an American account. And the way they're... Uh, combating scalpers actually makes a lot of sense your account needs to have uh, bought a game before the steam deck was announced so back in june the steam deck was announced in july you have to have owned a game since before june okay. and then it's only one per customer uh i don't think it's worth the uh hassle to get it though because i think the one of the big issues with going and uh gray importing a product like this is that you don't have the same warranty protections that you would if you bought it legitimately in Australia. Yeah. That's why I am a bit iffy about buying stuff like that uh, and reshipping and all of that. Because with a product that expensive, if something goes wrong, and it probably will for a first-generation product, even the Valve Index had a few warranty issues, uh, I want to be able to get the warranty because... I don't have a spare, you know, thousand bucks to buy another one and then wait three weeks or however long it takes for the reshipping. So with the Steam Deck, so what have you learned from, from besides the fact that, besides all the stuff that you just said, what are the other stuff that you've learned from the... Okay, so they've put a lot of uh, effort into making it run stuff well. There's going to be different uh, graphics modes you can select because it is basically just running the PC version of... Uh, the software, but it seems to have most of the features of the Steam controller. It's got rear buttons uh, for your, um, like on the back of the console. It's got two sticks. It's got touch pads on either side, which you can map. Oh, everything's remappable. Um, there's, I think there's gyro control, which I'm not sure how well that'll go with the Steam controller, Steam Deck, because the deck is pretty heavy and you can't detach the controllers. I think that's uh, probably, well, maybe a patent issue because uh, Valve does that with the Switch. I actually don't really know there, uh, just speculation. But I feel like if you're holding something like the uh, Steam Deck, which weighs... Uh, I, actually, I don't remember if um, if I've actually seen a weight for it, uh, but they did what, comment uh, that it is heavier than a, uh, a Switch. I found it on um I found a Wikipedia page for it. They're saying here the weight is 669 grams, which is what for our American listeners, 1.475 pounds. Okay, not too bad then. Um compared to the Switch, uh it, it is heavier. The Switch itself is something like 400 grams. The question would be would you be able to fit this in a pocket? No. It's bigger than the Switch. Like you can <laughs> kind of fit the uh, switch. So on the back of the uh, deck, there's grips for the controllers. So you know the uh, the switch itself is basically flat, except for the bumpers and the the uh, 
The Joy-Cons, um, yeah. Joy-Con, yeah, the sticks. Yeah. So the Switch... Um, okay, here we go. So the Switch with the Joy-Cons comes in at just under 400 grams. But the um, deck is so big that you can fit a Switch with Joy-Cons attached into the gap between the grips on the uh, on the back of the deck. Okay. So it only runs at 720p or 800p uh, might be what they're targeting. Um, I think we can't exactly say for the specs yet. They're probably going to continue to nail that down in the next few months. Um, I think the pre-orders aren't expecting to ship until next year. Okay. But the... Um, the I've uh, lost that train of thought. <laughs> I gotta admit, though, um, aesthetically, when I look at the Steam Deck, it re- it looks a bit like a PSP. Really? I yeah. would have said it looks more like a Switch, but black. Yeah, well, look, when you look at the PSP, right? I'm pretty hyped for it, though, even aside from the hardware. I'm pretty hyped for it because uh, it means Valve is taking... Linux compatibility extremely seriously. So it's basically a Linux-based console. Well, it's yeah. a full computer designed as a console. Um, so if you wanted, you can drop out of the custom Steam uh, interface. They don't have a name for it yet, but it is a Steam interface designed for the deck. Um, From what I've I've seen, uh, someone made a name. Uh, it was already named. Give me a second. Uh, Steam Link. Uh... Steam Link's a different thing. Oh, okay. A Steam Link is a little streaming box that you plug into your TV, and it lets you play games from your PC on the TV. Okay. Uh, they said Steam OS. Yeah. So system. it is. It does seem to be a continuation of Steam OS, mm-hmm. which itself was a project for the Steam Machine, which was a. Uh, sort of low-power, small-form-factor PC for um, streaming from your personal computer to the TV, or also you could run lightweight games on it. But I do think that um, they're also partnering with AMD. It's using a custom AMD APU, which isn't available separately. Um, So I think we're going to see some really good driver support here. And... That's what I love about Steam Proton. It makes it it makes supporting Linux a almost a non-issue for the developer. Proton, uh, so a bit of history. Proton is sort of a more modern version of Wine, which was a uh, piece of software for Linux that let you run Windows software under Linux. Traditionally, or infamously buggy, um, doesn't necessarily play nice with games. So they decided. Proton would be designed specifically to play nice with games. And um, we're getting to the point now, and it is um, absolutely amazing. I never thought this would happen a few years ago, but we're getting to the point now that DRM companies are starting to support Proton, Mm. which has been one of the big uh, roadblocks in Linux gaming. The DRM uh, means that you can't play competitive multiplayer games on Linux. Uh, so, you know, I've wanted to switch to Linux for a while. Um, not a big fan of where Windows is going. I want to, uh, I also like having more control over my computer and Linux has a lot of things going for it that I like, basically. 
but I haven't been comfortable putting it on my main PC because um, I'm a heavy gamer. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But uh, I mean, Proton look- has gotten to the point that I'm starting to feel comfortable with the idea of maybe dual booting to begin with and just see how it goes for a bit before I take the full leap. Uh, I've been considering that for a little bit now. I should probably just do it and get it over with. Um, so between Proton and the custom AMD chip, it seems like they're getting really serious about support for Linux. Uh, traditionally, AMD has been better than NVIDIA for Linux support because AMD opens up their drivers. So uh, Linux people can tinker on them and fix any issues to come up. NVIDIA's always had closed drivers. Okay. Curiously, though, um, so with all the info that, that's been laid bare, will this blow the games development market in a, in a, in a, big, in a big way? Um, I think for game developers, it's just another PC. That's what's incredible about Proton. You're not making a separate version. You're not compiling to a separate uh, console. You're just compiling for Linux it, or... Just compile for Windows and let Proton handle it. I think, um, so pure speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if Proton gets enough people onto Linux that more developers start taking Linux support seriously. In the past, uh, I don't remember the name of the game, but I do remember that uh, one game that had Linux support posted, uh, the developers posted Linux accounts for like 2.5% of their users but accounts for 20%, I'm probably off on the numbers, but 20% of support requests. So they considered it not worth the effort to support Linux. <laughs> Understandably, because you're just not making the, the money out of the Linux users to pay your team to support them, unfortunately. Um, so here's my wild guess. Proton and Steam Deck will get enough people playing on Linux for developers to see that and think, let's make a native Linux version. Uh, the native Linux version will increase the market share of Linux. Um, and eventually, the um, Linux will become the predominant operating system and developers will all support Linux by default. So basically, you're going to make Bill Gates cry. Uh, probably not, because Bill Gates already has his billions. <laughs> but, um, Steve Ballmer, is he still there? No, uh, I don't think he is. It's Who is it now? Uh, oh, it's an Indian guy. Satya Nadella, I think? Yeah, 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 yeah. that's the one, yeah. Yeah, it'll make Nadella cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Satya but, Nadella. So, um, Nadella, I think, uh, from what I know, is partly behind the push for better Linux on Windows support with stuff like uh, Windows subsystem for Linux. The question, the other question I would, ha- um, I would wonder with the Steam Deck is, are we going to see more, um, uh, is, will there be, like you said about the whole Linux and Windows battle. So let's say, for example, you've got a, ba- a bit of a Windows um, users. Will they be left behind in terms of um, performance issues? Eventually, maybe. I'm not convinced that will be a significant factor for a very long time, though. I think what we will see first is um, 
better support for Linux uh, via Proton than better support for Linux via native compilation from engines. Uh, so for Unity, I think Unity already supports Linux. It definitely supports Android, which is sort of a, a cousin of Linux. Um, then for uh, then for people to start supporting Linux natively and so on and so forth until Linux is a major uh, has major market share. And from what we've seen so far, the um, the deck has surprisingly good performance. I'm pretty excited for this. <laughs> I know you would be pretty excited for this. I yeah, you would. Hardware, uh, hardware wise, it's exciting. It's pushing the uh, the limits of what we can do with um, with portable hardware. Do you reckon this is put? This is the evolution. Well, should I call it revolution or evolution of um, um small com- of small computing like like when we had the PC, then it was the laptop, then it's the um yeah um so phones have been pushing it for a bit, but the problem with phones is that they have an awful interface for gaming. Yeah. Um, small screens, touch is not great for anything other than uh, strategy. And even then, you're limited by the size of the screen. Um, you notice people who take phone gaming seriously, and I think that's a much bigger thing in Asia than it is in the West. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially Pokemon Go and how it's a big thing over there. Well, I'm not thinking of Pokemon Go. Uh, Pokemon Go is like built from the ground up to be a touchscreen game, but yeah. I'm thinking PUBG Mo- Mobile, COD Mobile, that uh... sort of thing. Okay. I've played uh, shooters on my. Actually, I did play quite a few shooters on my iPod Touch back in in high school, uh, but that was because I didn't have access to a gaming computer. Um, I didn't even have my own personal laptop at the time. Uh, that wasn't you know until later that I had my own computer that only I used, so I could always guarantee that I could actually use it. Uh, you know, it gets a bit tricky when you're having to fight with your family for computer time. Yeah. Uh, but the... Um, so I did play some shooters on my iPod Touch, and they weren't great. The interface was pretty shit. I think uh, the people who take that sort of stuff seriously tend to have a controller that goes with their phone. Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, that reminds me. I did remember um, doing... the playing games on the um, iPod Touch as well. I re- was my f- one of my favorite games I used to play was the uh, Simpsons Hit and Run game. And man... Oh, that came out on iPod as well? Yeah, that came out on iPod as well. And it, yeah, you're right. Did the you screen- ever finish it? Did I ever finish it? Ah, uh, yeah. No, I didn't, unfortunately. Okay. Nerdcube did a, uh, a playthrough of that years ago. It ended up killing his PlayStation 2. No. Uh, so he ended up getting another PlayStation Two, and but that final level. Uh, did you ever get to the final level? Oh no! Actually, 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 gotta correct myself on this one. It wasn't a hit and run. It was um, the Simpsons tapped out. Oh right. Yeah, that's yeah. a bit more like Farmville, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It has it. It does have the Farmville aspect to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah well, uh, just wrapping up the uh, hit and run discussion. Yeah. Um. So first it killed his PlayStation, and then <laughs> he got to the final level, which is an awful level. 
the frame rate drops horribly in it. The, the console just can't keep up because in the um, in the final level they added all of these like graphical effects because it's a Halloween level, so there's like ghosts and transparency and stuff. The console did not like it. Uh, <laughs> it nearly uh, nearly killed him because the goal is to take your car and move explosive barrels to the um, alien spaceship where they get picked up by tractor beam. And he got, like, within seconds of finishing it a few times. Like, he's literally in the tractor beam, and then time runs out and he loses the mission. <laughs> so it just about killed him. Damn, and then he a... uh, came back for a Halloween special where he went to face it again. Still couldn't do it. <laughs> Damn, it makes it sound like one of the... It makes, Dark, makes the game Dark Souls look like a children's game. <laughs> hey, at least in Dark Souls, if you die, it's because you stuffed up. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about the Steam Deck, and I think it'll be an interesting emulation machine. Um, now, you know, emulation's a grey area. Uh, it should be, um, you know, don't pirate games that are still around. Uh, my own personal sort of moral code with it is abandonware only. Yeah. But I think it would make an interesting emulation machine. You could load uh, retro games onto it, um, emulate early consoles, maybe. It'd be, it'd be a good emulation machine, but the problem would be is the region lock as well. Uh, no, because you can drop straight out of, uh, straight into a regular Linux OS. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Presumably, it's going to run a version of SteamOS, a, a new version. I don't know if they'll still call it SteamOS. Maybe they'll call it DecOS or something. But uh, since they haven't supported SteamOS for a couple of years, um, so yeah, I think um, it'll um, it'll support basically anything you throw at it. You're not going to be running at the highest graphical settings, but it's a handheld. What can you ask for? <laughs> But uh, we've been, uh, like, you got me talking a lot there, DJ. <laughs> You're passionate about this game, I've got to admit. <laughs> well, I love Valve hardware. The only <laughs> Valve hardware I've actually got experience firsthand with is the Steam controller, and I love that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm really excited to see what they do next. Hmm. I agree. I agree. So, um... From the from from loving uh, Steam, we're going to be loving this new one. Uh, Amazon has revealed the uh, new Lord of the Rings series and some interesting announcements in relation to it, such as the premiere date, which is September the second, twenty twenty two, as filming has completed for the first season of the show on August the second in New Zealand, and they've showed the official first image of it. Looks beautiful. Okay. So they've said that uh, they're not going to release any details about the whole series, but uh, this will take place in the Second Age, thousands of years prior to the events to both the Lord of the Rings books and The Hobbit, and it will follow an ensemble cast of characters both familiar and new as they confront the long-feared re-emergence of evil to Middle-earth. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 mind you, uh, from what I've heard, that they're doing the... Source material they're using is the Silmarillion. Yeah, the Silmarillion, kind of the Bible, but uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Well, Amazon's gonna gonna make another monopoly of 
and making Monopoly over it, and... Well, yeah, yeah, Amazon currently owns the rights to make um, Lord of the Rings TV shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my understanding is that uh, Tolkien Estate has been a bit hesitant about uh, Third Age stuff for um, because you know The Hobbit was a bit of a flop, and the Lord of the Rings also changed a decent amount of stuff. So they're a bit bit iffy about it. But this is but, second age, so it works around that. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. Like with okay, like with the Lord of the Rings, with the Amazon Lord of the Rings. Do you re- like? Do we want to know about the fall of Numenor? Like, do we yeah. want to know how how Sauron came to be? Do we really want to know the do backstory? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's already like we already know that like, Sauron is evil. Like, we really need to know the backstory of him, though. Like, that's, I think like, Lord of the Rings. Uh, like, yes, because. Lord of the Rings isn't... It's not like they're just making it up to have more content, but um, it's more that Tolkien originally wrote so much content for Lord of the Rings. Uh, So many notes, so much content. It's all... um, It wasn't all released while he was alive. A lot of it's been put together by his son, Christopher. Yeah, yeah, it was... Yeah, if I recall, like, they were just, like, a collection of interconnected stories, legends, and poems over the... yeah. It yeah, kind it, of developed over time. Yeah, and it and it was like a it's a less structured narrative, and it's more uh, yeah, and it's like like you said, some it's of more... it is, some of it is actually proper structured narrative. Yeah, but that's how Bible stories go too. Like I compared it to the Bible, but Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> it you know even the Bible does that. Some of the bits are just like short descriptions of events. Some of it's really quite detailed stories. Some. Yeah historical stuff some legends um but you know you could there's so much history revealed in tolkien's notes you can kind of be a lord of the rings historian yeah like so uh, i think there's plenty of content for them to work with yeah but here's the thing with lord with the original lord of rings why it's so good like with the peter jackson edition like the acting, besides the acting and directing, fundamentally the trilogy. Oh yes, yeah. you know that uh, that Aragorn kicked the helmet and broke his toe. <laughs> I remember that one. That was funny as hell. Literally like every time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, besides the acting and directing, like fundamentally the trilogy succeeded because it remained faithful to the source material. Like Jackson and his colleagues were smart enough to realize that the Tolkien had already written a perfect story. For yeah, them and they all made they... changes. Yeah, oh uh, yeah, the they... changes worked for the, um, the format. Yeah, true, true. But then it was all it was. All they needed to do was find a way to condense it to nine hours of screen time or eleven uh, hours. Excuse you... me, extended editions, please. Yeah, no, le- like I was going to say, eleven hours. If you're one of those mad lads that want to go for the extended cut. <laughs> but um, yeah, we're they, not they... mad lads. We just appreciate <laughs> art. <laughs> I agree with you there, but um, overall, the, yeah, they did a nice job, and all they had, and they, they had all the source material they could ask for, and their real concern was what stuff to leave out, like, like the, the, there may be some personal taste and stuff, but yeah, bring but, back Bombadil. <laughs> yeah, oh, that would have been great. Oh, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadil, oh. <laughs> But yeah, the, but then you you're right about the Hobbit though, how the, it went a, a bit off the rails uh, uh, because a bit. So let me tell you the issue with the Hobbit. 
<laughs> oh, the, the Hobbit, Hobbit itself. Uh, what is the word count of the Hobbit? Like three hundred pages or something. It's yeah, it's like a third the length of a single Lord of the Rings book, and they extended it to the same amount of content as the Lord of the Rings. But um, yeah, but with the Hobbit though, like it was original originally three three hundred pages. Okay. And- yeah. So here's the thing: uh, the Hobbit, ninety five thousand words. The Fellowship, <laughs> one hundred and eighty seven thousand words. Damn. So. There's significantly more detail in Fellowship than there is in The Hobbit. Yeah. And And The Hobbit, I think The Hobbit, um, you know, they tried to introduce all this stuff, but I don't think they had the time or the effort to make it work. And that's partly because of the um, studio meddling. Yeah. Like, it was was originally Guillermo del Toro, and then they brought in Peter Jackson, like, last minute. Yeah. And he kind of just glued together what he had to meet the contract. Yeah. And it was also to pad out the story as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, if they'd made one film, you know, average length film, they could have told most of the story of The Hobbit, dropped a bit of the extra stuff, but got in most of it um, and just called it a day. And people would have loved that. Yeah. And that made the whole Hobbit trilogy look, look over the top and... Somewhat unnecessary. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, back so, to but, but with the with the Amazon ones, like it was like even though it's like there is some narrative to it, there's no dialogue or character development or any particular plot to speak of. Like, and here's the funny thing, right? If do you, you wanna... know that yet? Have you seen the Amazon show? No, <laughs> but so how do you but, know but... that there's no plot? There's no character development. It's the Silmarillion that basically yeah. that up though. No, yeah, you're completely missing the thing. There's tons of plot and characters in the Silmarillion. Yeah, there is, but what? Okay, like there is no overarching plot, is there? No, like, there... there isn't. But there are sections. Like I'm gonna keep comparing it to the Bible because they are quite similar <laughs> in terms of structure. <laughs> but in the Bible, there's no overarching arc apart from you know the story of humanity from the view of a Christian. Uh, well. First Jews and then Christians. Um, unless you want to go with the Quran and then you get first the Jews, then the Muslims. <laughs> yeah. But you get my point that it's, you know, uh, it's the history as written down by Christians in this case. And so you're covering, uh, how long do they reckon it's like the really hard But, depe- but depends on what. Uh, the earth is 6,000 years old. Yeah, but it depends on which. Like, are you gonna go with the from Genesis to the to Revelations from top to bottom, or are you gonna? You do don't like... have to. Hmm. Uh, you you know you can make just Jesus movie. You yeah. can make just Revelations movie. Oh yeah. You don't need to just go A to B, A to Z. You know. Yeah. You can pick and choose because there is no overarching plot. Something like the Silmarillion has a lot of backstory for how the Middle Earth ended up the way it is now in the Third Age, which is what most people are familiar with because that's Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Here's the thing that... It's like... um, So compare it... Think of it more like you've got a movie about Jesus, say, uh, Passion of the Christ, maybe, 
No, wait, that's just his death, really. But Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, I can't think of any examples of Jesus movies that cover his whole life. But then uh... you've also got um, Gods of Egypt, which is about... Um... Oh, you mean the Prince of Egypt? No, I'm thinking of that one that... Uh... Did Ridley Scott direct it? It was sort of no. a sequel to Noah? Or a no, prequel? it was um no. Uh, Gods of Egypt was a totally different movie. Um, Noah, okay, well, Noah was really Scott. Yeah. So then you've got the the Noah movie, which mm-hmm. is completely unrelated. You know, same universe, unrelated. Then you've got Gods of Egypt. Uh, is is Gods of Egypt even a Bible movie, or am I confusing myself? Uh, the one that uh, if I'm thinking, hang on a second, the. Uh... Gods of Egypt is is is, is like a is, is like a very is like a superhero movie, but I think you got the wrong title. Give me a sec, Prince of Egypt. Okay, I'm pretty sure there's a um a movie about that period of the Bible. Ah, uh, here we so, go. Ex- uh, I found it. It's uh, Exodus, ki- Gods and Kings. That's it. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. So that's an Exodus story. Yeah. You you know so Moses. Yeah. So there you've got three separate stories, same universe all with their own characters and development and plot arcs. And they all come together, like, the, um, they all come together to tell the story of how the universe got to where it is. But they're not intertwined, which is what uh, the Silmarillion is, basically. There are elements that appear again and again, like the Silmarils themselves, which, um, yeah, turn up even all the way through to the Third Age. Um, so, but here's a here's the thing, right? Like, okay, it's instead of comparing it to the Bible, let's compare it to like a modern example, right? Let's compare it to Game of Thrones, for example, and how they've uh, basically some of the stuff in the series of copy and pasted kind of thing. Well, to make it... they um, Game of Thrones doesn't have the background that Lord of the Rings does. Um, George R. R. Martin is trying to fill it out now, but uh. We don't have access to the same sort of background. There's no Silmarillion of um, Westeros. Yeah, yeah. Well, you gotta admit he is working on a. He's doing historical books. He's (laughs) taking every excuse he can to not finish um, the Game of Thrones plotline. Yeah, he makes it. He makes your average glacier look like an F1 car by comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so he's taking every excuse he can to not work on that, and one of his. (laughs) some projects in the last couple of years was um, a historical sort of Westeros story. Yeah, set I think... hundreds of years before Game of Thrones. Yeah, the um, House of Dra- House of the Dragon. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah the story of the Targaryen civil war. Yeah, so he's coming up with stories like that, but I don't think there's um, enough content in the history of Game of Thrones to fill out a Silmarillion. Yeah. But um, on the subject of um, the uh, Game of Thrones, though, so, Je- so Jeff Bezos, the um, overlord of Amazon and future ruler of Earth, well, even though that might be disputed with Elon Musk doing it, um, he, sa- he recently came out saying that he wants Lord of the Rings, the Lord of- his Lord of the Rings series, to be the next Game of Thrones. And... <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, well, con- of course he does. Yeah, well, uh, but here's the thing though: considering the lack of imagination and creativity we have experienced in the last few weeks, um, I don't think he's referring to the success and recognition of the show he wants. He, <laughs> I don't think. I, I think he wants to emulate the dark, gritty, mature tone of the series. Well, yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, and poured it into Lord of the Rings. Uh, the, uh, there the are thing is... Lord of the Rings stories that are quite dark. Oh, yeah. yeah but there are... I don't know that they quite match up with, um, with um, Game of Thrones dark. Yeah. Because and... there's, hope is a pretty strong theme of the Third Age stories. Yeah. Yeah, and, the, and the I fun... admit that I haven't um, haven't read many Second Age stories. Yeah. I just know from reading articles about the history of uh, Middle Earth. And the funny thing is, though, like now that you mention it, the funny part about it is how they've uh, for the for the Amazon series they've hired intimacy coaches to help out the sex scenes. Uh, which I, I, okay, but me personally, I find it hilarious because these are grown ass adults and they're professional actors, so they know how to. So they, you, so they you're thinking to... of it the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, it's no. not like having someone on set who's like, <laughs> "Okay, now hug tighter" or whatever. <laughs> it's someone on set who's making sure that everyone's comfortable, that everybody feels safe, and it's not about like what's going to go into film. It's about protecting the people who are making the scene. Yeah. But the point of it, though, is that they wanted the sex and nudity in the show, partly because it will allow them to work sexual politics into the narrative and giving them a, a strong female character as a convenient mechanism to a- attain power and leverage. Because Game of Thrones had sex and nudity, and no, Game of Thrones was. I popular. think you're wrong. I really. I, I think I'm they're not... just going to shove it in there because the <laughs> phrasing. I think they're just putting sex and nudity in because they think it's popular at the moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't and think she... they need it to force a strong female character because there are plenty of strong female characters in Lord of the Rings anyway. Yeah, that's true. That's I true. Mean, and, you, and you're, you're right about the whole... Uh, they want I can't even it... count them on one hand. Yeah, you, you, but you are right about how they want to make Game of Thrones popular and Jeff wants, to make, make his show, wants his show to be popular, so why not just copy other popular things and hope it works out? Yeah. Yeah. So I think... Um, the I think there's plenty of content that you can make a Lord of the Rings prequel story about. I just think you have to do it right. And yeah. we'll see how they do it. Um, you know, they are I am a bit skeptical that it will be good since they're shoving in all of the sex and nudity. Yeah, um I'm, I'm hoping that's just a, a sign that it uh well, I'm hoping that's just to follow the trends and that they have the skill to pull off something like the movies of Lord of the Rings again. See, my my skepticism about the series is how they're going to make um how how they're going to ch- like what type of narrative they're going to put in. Like, so for example, like Tolkien's work was always the higher, grander ideals of than than that um than what it was. Yeah. So it's Tolkien about... wanted to create a mythical um mythical what am I looking for? Well, a mythos for the the West. He kind of thought um, that, at least in English, there was no overall. So this is kind of getting into outside factors. But yeah. he was really into language. Part of the reason why he wrote Lord of the Rings was because he developed these languages and wanted a story to tell about the the people who use those languages. Like, the languages in Lord of the Rings are mostly proper languages with defined grammar. Um, the but he was also aiming to create a mythos for English speakers. So you know the Nordics have stories like Beowulf, 
Um, but he didn't think that there was anything like that in English. Yeah. In fact, Beowulf was one of the first things that he uh, wrote, I believe. Um, let me just Google that to double check. Yeah. And I, I, get, I get where he's coming from, but like, I suspect that like Tolkien's old-fashioned whole, whole, um, wholesome idealistic views on good versus evil, it doesn't factor in particularly well with what we're seeing in modern media. And well, there are also shades of grey in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, true, true. But here's the here's the thing: like, with it with with the modern media, it's going to be where nothing is wrong, nobody's good or evil, or nothing, and nothing we do means anything. Like his particular brand of storytelling, Tolkien's, mind you, is the polar opposite we're we're churning out today. I mean, God forbid, like we like God forbid, people might come out of the movie or TV series feeling inspired and emotionally satisfied. I mean, if this trend was the if this trend follows, yeah. I so I, you think that they're going to take Lord of the Rings and just make it all grey morality? Oh, I, I reckon I, that, and plus, I reckon what they'll do is they'll paint Sauron as some misunderstood hero. I hope not, because it's very clear that Sauron isn't misunderstood at all. Sauron is a corruption of what is good. So the Silmarillion, coming back to that. So the first part of the Silmarillion is basically Genesis. It's the creation of Middle-earth, and it describes how, um, how Middle-earth was created by... Shoot, I can't remember his name now. Uh, Eru. Yeah. So Eru, the creator of Middle-earth, uh, the first part is... of So the first part of the Silmarillion is about Eru creating, uh, the name isn't Middle-earth at that point, but you know, creating the universe, creating the people who live in it. Uh, he creates, it also kind of mirrors biblical, biblical Genesis, um, because he creates a um, the Aena, who are his sort of assistants. So um, Eru, like, the overarching idea is that Existence is sort of music, and Eru created the Aena, who he said, you know, come and make music with me. And Melkor, who was one of the uh, Aena, was like, nah, screw you, mate, I'm going to go bugger off and do my own thing, <laughs> uh, and started singing his own song. And um, so actually, I'm just going to pull it up to refresh my memory. That's fair. I had it up a minute ago. So... Yeah, he creates the universe, creates the Aenor. Melkor leads rebellions against him. Remind you of anyone? <laughs> Satan. Like, <laughs> Satan, yeah. Melkor is basically Satan. So Tolkien was probably inspired by the Bible a bit. Yeah. Um, Melkor rebels and uh, creates, um, well, corrupts the song. He convinces some of the um, the Aenor to join him and help create bad things. And some of the bad things include Sauron and Borogs and... The Orcs. Uh, yeah, Orcs and Trolls and Ents. Well, not Ents, sorry. Orcs and Trolls. And it says in the... If I'm remembering correctly, it says in the Silmarillion that Orcs and Trolls are corruptions of existing creatures that Eru created. Uh, well, Eru and the, the good Aenor. Um, so 
that sort of kicks the whole thing into gear. You know, it's the, the classic Satan the Betrayer story. Yeah, it's it, uh, like, but like these stories, for example, like these stories, as you said, they they're idealistic, they're wholesome, they're they're, they're okay. Granted, they've been played out years and years after. Yeah, but then so, can you imagine like these stories just being twisted into? Oh, Sarah was initially a good guy. Well, he was a good. There man. are characters you can do that to without ruining it. So, um, even in the third age, Saruman himself was a bit gray. Yeah. Um, Saruman created the Urukai, uh, if I remember correctly. But Saruman was also, you know, working with uh, Sauron, but not to rule Middle-earth as Sauron's servant. He himself planned to overthrow Sauron. Does that make him a good guy or a bad guy? Okay. Actions wise, I would say he's a bad guy. Like him trying to attack Isengard and yeah, and destroying the Shire. Yeah, yeah. In the books, not the movie. Yeah. I mean, it would have made the movie so much longer, but I am a bit sad we didn't get to see that. Yeah. Uh, basically, in the um, in the books, of while the Fellowship were away, Saruman uh, and his group. It was called the Scouring of the Shire. And some people take that as a bit of a metaphor for World War One. Um, it's a, there's an argument that Lord of the Rings is a metaphor for World War One. The you know happy, optimistic young men Frodo and Sam go out, go to battle, see horrible things, and they finally succeed and come back. And everything has been industrialized. The world that they uh, they left is doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But, okay, I think I'm going to have to tell you to move it along there, DJ. <laughs> because but, okay, this okay. is a <laughs> variety be... show, not a Lord of the Rings show. For that, you can check out, um, uh, who uh, is it? We have more... one of those at TNC, don't we? Yep, we do. We do. I, I'll, I'll whip it up while I... While, uh... The si- while we look at the science topic, which is uh, about Minecraft and how it's helping kids um, dealing with autism. Okay, uh, here it is. Mordor She Wrote. <laughs> I love that name. I know. Joe. So okay, what uh, does Minecraft have to do with autism, apart from it being a stereotype that autistic kids like Minecraft? Uh, they're saying that video, ki- video games online can be anti can be antisocial, but the autocraft community is helping kids with autism learn social skills and build and relationships. Autocraft, not autocraft. Oh, right. Autocraft. Sorry. So, like many constructions, it started small, but now thousands of children with autism are making friends and learning social skills by playing a version of online building game Minecraft. Okay. So, uh, Stuart Duncan got the idea through a popular blog he ran. Uh, about his own experiences with autism, as well as bringing up a son with autism. And uh, other parents with autistic children started telling them that their kids w- were crazy about a game that would let them explore a randomly generated wilderness. However, despite loving the game, many of the children were being bullied by other players. Is it? Is it that toxic? Uh, I don't think they're talking about Minecraft specifically, but some games are pretty toxic. Yeah. So three years later, he um, he ra- he ran Autocraft for as a full time job, and the community boasts nearly seven thousand members, along with a team of admins to help manage its activities. And one of the, and uh, 
one of the quotes, basic one of the creators up said, "Minecraft strips away the pressures and distractions of the real world. You can really be yourself." So he's running a Minecraft group specifically for autistic, um, well, for autistic children and their families. It looks like. Yeah, yeah. I like this. I think um, it's uh, an interesting uh, concept. So they also point out that. Um, Kate Ringland from the University of California has uh, been doing work in Orcraft to help autistic children learn social skills. And I think that's uh, pretty cool. I remember, so I've got Asperger's, um, at least that's what I was diagnosed as. These days I would have been diagnosed with uh, autism because Asperger's is a was a subset of autism and then they uh, decided to just make it all autism of different degrees but um the i remember when i was young going to uh events and sort of social clubs for autistic people basically what they're suggesting and i think that was actually pretty helpful for me um to be able to learn uh social skills and make friends in a more controlled way where it's uh harder to get overwhelmed which is what uh what they seem to be aiming for by creating Orcraft. Hmm. Uh, um. T- to join this Orcraft, you must fill out an applica- must fill out an application, and once you're approved, you are free to roam the landscape and build your own structures. You can also take part in group games like massive battles against Withers, a kind of ghostly villain, or build things as a team. But you have to stick to some rules. Harassing other players or destroying their property can get you banned. Um, a spin-off yeah. server for teenagers is more pervis- uh, more permissive. So, kind of, um, that's quite similar to the rules I've seen on a lot of public Minecraft servers. Like, just don't be a jerk, basically. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that they're using um, Minecraft specifically, though, to help teach social skills. Um, yeah, I think the the power of multiplayer gaming is that it does help uh, create a a space where you can be you can sort of be yourself without the same pressure that you have in the real world. Yeah, but then the problem is though, like some people are saying that this um Warcraft, while it is good initial, is a good first step. It shouldn't be the only outlet. That's probably true. Um, you know, you can't emulate every scenario in Minecraft, but the uh, the same is true for the... Um, I'm trying to remember if there was a name for them. I think one of the programs I did was called Friends for Life, maybe? I don't remember exactly, but I don't think that's a, a perfect representation of a social environment either. Mm-hmm. But... It's all part of training and learning. So it sounds like they just found someone who was saying, it's not perfect, just so <laughs> they could have a dissenting opinion in the article. Yeah. But that, that, look, it, that, that sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, I think um, aside from it obviously not being a perfect system and not everyone being suited for this, uh, not every scenario being suited for this, I think um, it's great to see people using games for helping people like this. It's, um, I think, 
10 years ago, even maybe a bit longer, you probably would have had a hard time convincing people to um, take this seriously. So this is sort of showing how the world's changing, but it is allowing uh, new um, new ways of doing things that we've done in the past. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, it's good to see those types of games, but then there aren't well, there aren't many games that that are used to raise awareness, is there? No, actually, um, pretty good example of that would be uh, our friend Devi Boy, uh, yeah. his game An Aspie Life. Yeah, which is inspired by his own experience being an Aspie. Um, yeah, but then besides that, like besides that game, like we haven't heard any other game that has done that has raised awareness for people suffering from autism and whatnot. Uh, no, it's not one that I've heard a lot about, and I think it's one that's difficult because um, autism is a, a very psychological uh, disorder, whereas you can do. It's not like a physical disorder where you can create a, um, uh, well, I think psychology is one of the harder things to represent in media. Whereas, you know, deafness or blindness um, being a physical thing is much easier to represent. Just curiously, as a game developer, um, could you see um, more of these in the near future? I think this one in particular is a bit of a lightning in a bottle. It's specifically for a game like Minecraft. Uh, not a lot of games have the same sort of... Uh, Community? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you couldn't do this in, say, COD. How would you, you know, role-play social situations and making friends in COD? The only thing you can do in COD is kill. Yeah. You can't, like... You know, in Minecraft, you can roleplay a whole bunch of things. You can run a store. You can build stuff. I think um, it's uh, it's not just that. It's also building the community. You can build a community in any game, but it's not necessarily going to be an autistic-focused community that does good work like this one. Um, I mean, lots of people could create a community and say this is an autistic-focused community and have no idea what they're doing and uh, just well they could they, well they could always say like this is a safe space and that's it yeah and, but and, and that's that... also fairly limited uh about um you know just saying this is a place for people with autism is going to be less productive than what it seems like Orcraft is doing which is this is a place for people with autism and also a sort of social network for autistic people that makes any sense but we are um running out of time dj so how about we move it along to the shout outs that's fair that's fair so on to our shout outs on the uh, 1st of august at breakfast dj <laughs> so uh we'll take a short break and uh to come back with the shout outs remembrances famous birthdays and events of interest jeez it's like we take a few weeks off and you forget how to do everything <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, uh, on to our shout-outs. On the uh, 1st of August, Thea White, who, the voice of Muriel from Courage the Cowardly Dog, passed away at 81. The original show aired from 1999 to 2002, but Muriel returned to the role for an upcoming crossover movie with Scooby-Doo called Straight Out of Nowhere. The film is due to release in September. Thea died of post-surgery infection after having liver cancer removed. That was a good show too. Yeah, it's a a particularly tragic one as well that um, she had the surgery which seems to have been successful and then died as a result of the surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it's great that she was still coming back for the character, you know, uh, 20 years later. Yeah. I might, I might watch it just out of respect for her. Um, And on the uh, second, on the second of August, we passed the 30th anniversary of streets of rage. The original release of streets of rage in 1991 spawned a line of sequels. The lead designer, Noriyoshi O. Oba was inspired by existing fighting games and Western action television like Starsky and Hutch and The A-Team. It fo- featured a focus on cooperative play, letting players perform special moves by working together. And there were so many other cool mechanics for that game as well. I've actually only ever, ever played it single player. I, um, on the uh, Nintendo Switch um, emulator thingy that you get for having Switch Online. Yeah. I don't remember the name of it now, but um, yeah, I've only ever played it a bit there. I had no idea it had so much like co-op stuff in it. I might have to give it another go with yeah. a friend. I'll have to find a friend. <laughs> hey, you got me. You got me. <laughs> I said I need to find a friend. <laughs> so uh, subsequently, on the 3rd of August, the Buval Zoo announced that two, announced that two giant panda twins have been born. Giant pandas have difficulty reproducing in captivity, and it seems they also have issues in the wild. Because of this, once veterinarians confined the pandas were mating successfully, they decided to conduct an artificial insemination. China had has traditionally gifted and loaned pandas to foreign zoos as a form of diplomacy, and retained ownership of the cubs. They will not be named until they are 100 days old. Yeah, it's um... Pandas are, like, really bad at reproduction. Oh, yeah. They're temperamental. Yeah, like, they only have... If I remember correctly, it's, like, a few hours every month or couple of months that um, they're actually, you know, fertile. (laughs) And they're also really bad at the actual act of reproduction. (laughs) They're, They're not that interested in it, it turns out. Pandas just don't care about it and when they do they're they're bad at it oh uh, can you can you imagine so I, I i can imagine this some scientists trying to mirror the behavior of pandas to the behavior of humans in the day in, in the dating cycle just go like now ah, let's let, let's have sex and be like no piggy <laughs> can you imagine? well there was a zoo that uh showed panda porn to try to get them in the mood <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> no way that that has to be a myth <laughs> that has to be a myth <laughs> uh no it it's not oh no you so, found it yeah there's a lot of research into helping pandas be more um 
be more productive. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, because they just don't care. Pandas are like, the only reason pandas are, still exist is because people care enough about them because they're cute. I know. They're basically um, carnivores living on a vegetarian diet that they're not particularly good at. Uh, they, um, but you, you get the point. They're not particularly good at it. <laughs> but luckily, I like this one you... seems to be doing a good job of um, raising its children. Yep, I, I like how you're struggling to describe it, but it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I said my head's a bit funny tonight because yep. um, <laughs> that's fair. Reasons. That's fair. All right, and uh, finally on our shout-outs, we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Sir Tim Bur- Berners-Lee's first webpage on the 6th. Hosted at info.cern.ch, it detailed the World Wide Web project his team was working on. This page still exists and is available in almost the same form as it was when first created. Yeah, which is pretty incredible. How much other tech that's 30 years old is still uh, easy to access. Hmm. But as far as I can tell, um, the uh, first web page actually runs essentially the same. You can even go in and look at the code that they used to make it, which which is pretty cool. Hmm. So uh, although the internet existed before this, the t- team at CERN created the first examples of the first, mo- of, um, not the first modern web, of the, of the modern web. Tim rejected patents for, for web servers and browsers, helping attract more users. There are now more than 1.8 billion websites. In 2019, Tim released a book of rights and obligations for the internet, hoping to counteract the growth of misinformation information, surveillance, and censorship. He said, This new world in which so much of our society is already determined by how social networks work, and so on, is new, and there's no rule book written a hundred years ago. So this is, in a way, the first time we have a rule book in which responsibility is being shared. Yeah, uh, yeah, as if Twitter and Big Tech and Facebook are going to listen to that. Yeah. Although it's it's kind of funny um how he's released a book in in the hope of counteracting the growth of misinformation remind me of Obama I think a couple of months ago saying that the internet is the en- enemy of humanity or something it's, like that honestly for all the good the internet has done it's also done a lot of harm yeah here we go here we go um so Obama actually said this the internet is the single biggest threat to our democracy <laughs> I'm like. Yeah. Uh, way to go to say like the free flow of information should not be a thing. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think the um, issue is like, it's not that the free flow of information is bad, it's that people are using it to do bad things by yeah. spreading false information. Mm. Lies, basically. Yeah. But, then, uh, but, uh, but then that like, Look at all the, the uh, all the lies that have come out about COVID and vaccines. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, the internet has done absolutely incredible things for so many people. Yeah. I mean, it's let people get access to healthcare that is outside their local community. Um, instead of having to fly all the way around the world, you can do a Skype call with someone on the other side of the world and get advice on your medical condition. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's true. That's true. Uh, that, so, it, 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 it relies on the how 
how strong the internet connection is, though. Like, look at yeah, look at look at our love, look at our uh, country's lovely internet. Well, yeah, it's a lot better than it used to be. Still has issues, but uh, the other issue is that. um, Sorry, I've just noticed that a typo in Tim Berners Lee's first web pages. There's a typo. Uh oh. (laughs) What did you do? It wasn't me. It's his (laughs) website. Uh, I'm going to put the link into the show notes there under the section by mail on the page info.cern.ch slash hypertext slash www slash FAQ slash no internet under the section by mail. No, sorry. Well, yes, under by mail. Help, it's not a headline. Uh, Your mail system must have a mail gateway on the internet mail. But hat is quite likely. <laughs> oh, Tim. It's even got his signature on it. <laughs> He's signing the page. Uh, link to the Tim Berners-Lee disclaimer. Uh... This information is provided in good faith, but no warranty can be made for its accuracy. <laughs> it's got his um his email address at CERN and his telephone number. I wonder if uh if you called that, if you'd still get him. Oh, that would be funny. <laughs> if you notice anything incorrect or have any comment, feel free to mail me. <laughs> Dear Tim. Uh, so while the professor is typing up a, a, a big obscene email, um, we go to our remembrances. So um, Emil Berliner, um, inventor of the lateral cut, uh, lateral cut, Flat disc record, aka gramophone record, passed away on the 3rd of August 1929. He founded a number of gramophone companies around the world to produce gramophones and records, including the Victor Talking Machine Company in 1901, which is a great name. <laughs> Berliner's record greatly improved on previous phonographs, which used cylindrical records, which was very fragile. His design improved the strength, recording time, and allowing for an easier production. He also invented a type of loom, an acoustic tile, and an early helicopter along with James J. Newton Williams. This helicopter flew three times. <laughs> he died of a heart attack at 78 in Washington, D.C. On to our famous birthdays, on the same day in 1918, Sidney Gottlieb was born. Gottlieb was a chemist and spymaster best known for heading the CIA's MKUltra project. MKUltra is an infamous experiment of the CIA's work in assassinations, mind control, and crazy experiments using new drugs. Although much of the evidence was destroyed, the remainder was inspired, uh, has inspired a lot of conspiracy theories. The experiments include everything from drugging unwitting sus- suspects to torture, Along with the CIA's later Project Stargate, an attempt to harness psychics for both spying and war purposes, MKUltra inspired the television show Stranger Things. Gottlieb was born in New York City, New York. I love hearing about, like, I'm extremely annoyed that, annoyed is putting it lightly, but extremely annoyed about uh, MKUltra because it's so unethical. <laughs> and like just dosing ever... people up with massive doses of LSD, like way beyond what most people would take, and nobody uh, and, and nobody suspected a thing. That's the scary part. Well, they probably did when they started tripping, but you know they were just dosing people up with huge doses of LSD to see what would happen, uh, and torturing people. 
It's not right. <laughs> oh, this guy's career is amazing. As infamous as it is, it's amazing to look at. Like the reason why he's doing it is to crush the human psyche. <laughs> yeah. Try to find ways to absolutely break people and get them to do your bidding. <laughs> so absolutely unethical. But I love reading about it because it is so nuts. <laughs> like they were basically just throwing stuff at the wall to see what would happen. Yeah, and he w and it was also to um, one up the Ch the uh, Chinese and the Russians at the time as well. Yeah, like he was like uh, the C the C uh, like I was I remember like he started working at CIA. The CIA was ramping up its search for a way to conduct human control the human minds, falsely believing the Soviets and communist China had already mastered the process and would soon use it against uh, against them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this guy is insane, I will say that. <laughs> oh yeah, the people behind MKUltra, specifically him and the people working for him, absolutely evil. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the things the CIA does is evil, Oh, so by the way, I'm not suicidal. I will not commit suicide. <laughs> so this is your last will and testament, huh? <laughs> well, the CIA are kind of known for a habit of knocking off anyone they don't like. The CIA are the people who went to JFK and said, by the way, we can come up with an excuse to invade uh, Cuba. We'll just bomb people in America. <laughs> so they were going to false flag and kill American citizens so they could have an excuse to invade Cuba. Oh, what was God. Cuba doing wrong? Being communist. <laughs> uh... The CIA also uh, led um, the overthrow of democratically elected governments in South America to benefit US businesses. I can imagine uh, some CIA coming in right now and just going, this, this recording is closed. <laughs> yeah, CIA are uh, kind of bad people a lot of the time. Yep. Uh, as evil as they are, they got to admire their efficiency. Well, we got great shows like Stranger Things out of it. <laughs> but I wouldn't say the CIA are very efficient. I mean, they were doing a lot of things that didn't actually work. <laughs> but we're running way over time, so what's next? So, uh, on to our events of interest. On the uh, 3rd of August in 1977, Tandy Corporation announced the TRS-80, affectionately known as the Trash-80. <laughs> A home computer starting at $400. That's American, by the way. And that translates to almost $2,000 today. An Associated Press article state said the TRS-80 could do a payroll for up to 15 people in a small business, teach children mathematics, store your favorite recipes, or track it, or keep track of an investment portfolio. It can also play cards. <laughs> Despite skepticism, Radio Shack was overwhelmed by hundreds of thousands of pre-orders. The TRS-80 was also sold in Australia under the Dick Smith branding. Yeah, uh, lots of things. Dick Smith was basically the Aussie Radio Shack back in the day. Wait, uh, Dick Smith Tandy also had his... Then? Sorry? When did Tandy come in then? Uh, well, they weren't sold as Tandy. They were sold as Dick Smith TRS-80s. Okay. Um, so Radio Shack and Dick Smith both uh, rebranded a lot of products. That So you can buy a, a TRS-80 uh, that has a Dick Smith logo on it. Yeah. But then there was Tandy International. There was Tandy Electronics, though, mind you. 
yeah, Tandy produced them, but sold them under the brands Dick Smith and... Um, oh, actually, I've just Googled it. I'm a bit wrong. The Dick Smith Super 80 uh, was a clone of the Trash 80. <laughs> so technically different computers, but back in the day, they basically um, saw a interesting design, and then everyone made their own version of it. <laughs> so, well, okay, why the Trash 80 name? Uh, I think um, because it did have a lot of flaws uh, and quirks. Um, it had a, you know, it was sort of cheap and nasty. Fair enough, fair enough. I kind of miss the traditional uh, Dick Smith, though. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm old enough to ever actually remember the original Dick Smith, but seeing all the stuff that they sell, I actually have on my workbench right now a uh, voltage tester screwdriver. You know those ones that light up when there's electricity? Yeah, 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 yeah. Still in the original packaging, and um, I sort of uh, inherited it when I moved out, and Dad dumped any of the electrical work stuff that he could onto me, all the soldering irons and stuff. Um, oh, I, I, used to, I, I used to love the good old Dick Smith electronic. Is that a Dickie's uh, soldering iron? No, it's a master tool. I don't know if that's a Dickie's brand. Do you remember the Dick Smith books? The, uh, the Fun Wave, the Fun Wave Electronics, and all the other. And actually, yes, 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 I do now. Um, yeah, uh, I remember. You know, I must remember it because um, I remember my brother getting as a present when he was younger a Dick Smith uh, kit. I'm pretty sure it was a Dick Smith. Um, oh, do they have PDFs of that? I want to download them all. <laughs> but uh, it was a Dick Smith um, kit for making a speaker. Oh, that would have been cool. You can get similar things at J-Car these days, but even J-Car is not as uh, as good as the stories I've heard. Hmm. <laughs> I love the cover of this one on the uh, thumbnail here. A beer-powered radio. <laughs> That's different to the usual lemon battery. Oh, yeah. And so there's Triple X as the brand of the beer. Instead uh -huh. of uh, 4X. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Completely safe. Ideal for all ages. <laughs> uh, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, actually, was the crystal radio... I built a crystal radio when I was young. It must have been a um, probably a dicky kid as well. But um, anyways... Um, One more I'm... story about Dick Smith, though. Yep, sure, sure. You know how Dick Smith uh, brand have their fingers in all sorts of pies? There's like Dick Smith breakfast cereal and Dick Smith electronics. Oh, uh, yeah, the Dick Smith um, Vegemite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there was also a brand of Dick Smith matches. We have no. a common brand of matches in Australia called Redheads. Do you want to know <laughs> what the Dick Smith matches were called? <laughs> Dick it. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Dick no. seems like a funny guy. <laughs> I gotta admit though, as as much as he as much as you loathe the guy, he is absolutely gold. Do we loathe him? I mean, he's rich, but has he done anything else wrong? Uh no. I mean, I mean, there, there, okay. There was actually an interview with uh, Wally Dali 
uh, with Dick Smith, and Ali was trying to like do a gotcha on him, and then Dick Smith go like, you know, actually, Waleed, you know, you're stupid. <laughs> he, he says that outright. Okay. And well, people to were be like, fair, Waleed is stupid. Yeah, but man, the the outrage was hilarious. <laughs> They're like, oh my yeah. god. <laughs> I think these days, uh, Dick Smith does a lot of work in. Um, you know, it's been years since I've seen a documentary he's done, but uh, he does um, did a series of documentaries about how... Um, he's also a billionaire, uh, isn't he? Well, yeah, he's got tons of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's also... But, you know, he does good stuff. Like, he uh, advocated um, in the early, two, early... In the late 90s, sorry. He advocated for Australia Day to be renamed First Fleet Day in recognition that it's not... Uh, not a day for all Australians, uh, but he has some um, documentaries about the uh, economy and population and all that, trying to work out how we're going to solve the sustainability issues that we're coming up to. Because we're getting to the point now that there are tons of people on Earth. Um, we're approaching what's considered the holding capacity of Earth. Uh, the um, Oh, he was a scout too. I don't know anyone who was a scout who was a bad person. Actually, I do, but... <laughs> but anyways, uh, we, uh, I think we're yeah. kind of get veering off on uh, 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 different... Anyway, tangents. Dick Smith, bring back the original Dick Smith electronics. Do it! <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, finally, on the uh, 3rd of August, uh, we're, we're seeing a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. The uh, Philadelphia Experiment was released. This film was loosely based on the real-world experiments to... The gals, uh, the gals of war- warship's hull to help protect it from magnetically triggered space, uh, sea mines. The urban legend grew to involve teleportation, time travel, and even crewmen being fought, fused with the hull of the ship. The film depicts some crewmen being warped t- 40 years into the future, arriving in the 1980s, where they have to seek help from the scientists who ran the experiment to return to their own time. Especially similar to the in, similar to the inverse of the plot of Back to the Future, which came out le- which came out a year later. Philadelphia Experiment is also also made a joke about actor Ronald Reagan becoming U.S. president. The climax of the film takes place at the Wendover Air Base, where the Enola Gay was prepared for the bombing of Hiroshima. The U.S. Navy refused to support the film to avoid associations with the legend, which probably just made them look more suspicious. <laughs> you gotta admit, oh, that was a good. That would have been a good movie. Yeah, I was meaning to track down a copy of it. Uh, couldn't find it on any of the streaming services I have access to. Oh, maybe someone will post it up on YouTube. But um, anyways, uh, that's all we have for this week. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, that's not kind of um. Oh, hold on, I found something Dick Smith did did wrong. Oh yeah, supporting Pauline Hanson. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Although, mind you, that when he, sl- although, mind you, the reason why he did it was because of economics. I, uh, that's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. And he, he goes on to yeah. say, "Well, he, you don't know what you're talking about. Shut up." That's <laughs> what he's saying. I don't, you know, I don't agree with everything he says, obviously, but um, you know, he does have some good points, I think. But um, yeah, um, uh, yeah, you can find us on that'snotcanon.com as well. We have an archive of our old episodes, and you can also find new podcasts such as Cartoon Time Machine, which is visiting different cartoons and eras and animations. 
In each episode, the animates, which were two idiots with film degrees, discuss their takes on beautiful or hated cartoons of the past, present, and the future. That'd be a good one to check out. Yeah, sounds like fun. Yeah, I wonder what's the. I wonder what would their view of um, Disney cartoons would be like. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah. So, um, anyways, that's that's all we have for today. Take care of yourselves and stay hydrated. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.